Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who worked with HIV patients in the early 90s. With parallels in the COVID pandemic, we discuss how the message of vaccination can best be relayed to the population. And in that regard, he says, You are more likely to listen to somebody who is trusted in your life, even in subject matter that they are not experts in. My guest on the podcast today is Ace Robinson. Ace Robinson, you're very, very welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. Now, many people listening to this conversation won't know you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were you born and raised and what's the context in which you comment on things? First, I want to say thank you. Thank you for making time to have this conversation and uh, inviting me on. I'm really looking forward to um, where our conversation will hopefully go. My name is Ace. I use masculine pronouns. Uh, he, him, uh, depends on which language you speak. And I'm originally from the middle of the U.S. It's from a, a city called St. Louis, Missouri. But whenever I'm traveling around the world, I tell people I'm from Chicago because it just saves time because no one's actually heard of St. Louis because most people, especially when I'm speaking French, they'll say, oh, uh, they think I'm saying St. Louis and Senegal. And I'm all like, no, 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 there's another one. Smaller, well, actually probably about the same size, but no. So I'm from the middle of the U.S. A little bit about me. So uh, from, from St. Louis and eventually uh, did undergrad and start doing, I had this opportunity to do like study abroad, right? Typical study abroad and typical me, I made my decision very last minute, very happenstance. And I ended up in a little known place called the Republic of South Africa. So off I go to the middle of nowhere, South Africa, this place called Grahamstown, which uh, to a place called Rhodes University, which is also nicknamed the University of Zimbabwe, South Africa, where long stories about colonization, so on and so forth. But make a long story short, there's a, a lot of Zimbos who learn, do varsity, do university in South Africa. And while I was there, and this is really like kind of where my, my career, my life kind of like uh, started to mix together, I had this opportunity to do volunteer work. And they were like, what? They're like volunteering wasn't really a thing for a lot of the students at the time. And I volunteered at this place called Settlers Hospital. And at Settlers Hospital, now mind you, this is the mid-90s. So if you're working in the middle of nowhere, South Africa, at a small local clinic, you're really working at a HIV hospice care. That's really what it was. And I'm just this, uh, this kid. I think I was 20 years old at the time. And a lot of people come in and come in for, they need a high level of services. Because if you also remember, I'm there around the time that HIV treatment was getting better. We actually had protease inhibitors. World HIV Day for for us when we're recording this is tomorrow, so or for you, it's uh, today, uh, the first of December. And at the time that we just had protease inhibitors, and the whole world is getting them. People are like, "Oh my God, we're going to change the epidemic." But guess what was happening in South Africa during that time period? There were people who thought that this medication wasn't working. That it was the pharmaceutical companies trying to cash in, that they are actually still toxic, so and so forth. So while the rest of the world is getting uh, getting better access to treatment, not equitably, that's a whole separate conversation that we'll have to have, but it's available. But intentionally in South Africa, there were politicians and people who were leading health departments 
who were preventing people in that country from getting access. So while some people are getting access to treatment there, it was still, they were telling people to use garlic, beetroot, all these like wives tale type things about how to address HIV. And people still say like, why is South Africa so ravaged by HIV? I was like, the rest of the world got a head start while South Africa intentionally put itself in, behind in the ring. And so then from there, I did finish school. I, I'm a biochemist, so big nerd. I had the mask on. I was going to develop an HIV vaccine because that's, I was like, I'm going to help change the world, so on and so forth. And as we know, vaccines are a big part of conversations in a lot of different ways right now. But like that was where I began my career. I was working in Senegal. Uh, really, and like that was a lot of work. We're just trying to trying to support individuals to make sure they're living a healthier life. And a lot of time, we spent time working with commercial sex workers in West Africa. And then, as things go, there were elections. There is an election in the United States, and this might sound familiar. The loser of the election became the president. Not this, like so. This wasn't 2016, but this is 2000. This guy named George Bush becomes president of the United States, even though he lost the election due to a technicality. Don't ask me why the U.S. is still stuck on some um, archaic system called the Electoral College and the winner doesn't necessarily win, but whatever. How did that impact what I was doing? Suddenly, HIV funding and treatment was tied to this thing called abstinence education. It was very puritanical that only the only people who deserve help are people who follow a certain set of rules given by somebody in Europe, Middle East from thousands of years ago. With all that we lose our funding, da, da, da. Like, I'm going to go, I am forced back to the US, but I'm going to be okay, right? I'm going to be perfectly fine. I'm going to go back. I'm going to get unemployment. Uh, like, you know, I'm going to receive money uh, while I'm unemployed, find a new job. I'm going to ultimately be okay. But those women, those sex workers that we worked with in Senegal, it's hard to say, you don't want to get too emotional in these conversations. But, you know, when I think about all those women that we supported, they would all be alive today, probably, if that if that election had gone a different way. But I, I doubt that any of those women are alive today because they lost their entire support system overnight. So then I go into public health and in health policy and, and healthcare administration. I said I don't want to do research because not, not that I didn't want to do research, but I was called to make sure that I was more engaged in health policy and health administration and how are things delivered and making sure that. People are not going to lose their lives because there is an election made and that with with be, due to that election, that's their value, their lives were uh, devalued and they weren't given the care that they need. So long, that was a long way to say politics pushed me into healthcare policy, healthcare administration. And that's what I'm doing today, really focused in health equity. Today, I'm serving as the chief mission officer of COVID Clinic Incorporated. It's an organization, of course, founded um, in response to the pandemic that we're all living through. But we're trying to ensure that individuals have access to healthcare through the routes of COVID care. So meaning like you coming in for your vaccines or you do you need to get screened for, for COVID care? And then we're doing partnerships and like trying to make sure people have access. And in our country, we don't have everyone doesn't have access to healthcare. So making sure that people get access to the avenues that they can procure healthcare making sure they're looking at things like HIV screening, hepatitis screening, STIs, and harm reduction. Because in the country that I live in, uh, the opioid epidemic, um, there's a lot of people who are 
who um, have taken narcotics of different kinds and get addicted. And we're looking at overdoses nonstop. And how do we have a harm reduction model as opposed to a punitive model, which we have proven in every country that outlawing substance use just brings people underground and, and means people are going to die preventable deaths as opposed to the other side saying like, oh, how can we help you get to live a, a better and stronger life? I hear the passion. I hear the interest. I hear the drive. But I also hear a sadness back in the conversation. The people who you worked with all those years ago, who've lost their lives because they were denied care. History repeats itself and it's repeating itself today. Why aren't you jaded? Why aren't you giving up? Why aren't you just saying that's how it's going to unfold? What keeps you going? With almost all of these situations, there is a good and a bad, right? So if I focus on the failings of society to serve human beings, yes, I would be jaded and I wouldn't be able to do this work. But do you know what I also see? I see the successes. I see uh, people overcoming adverse situations. I see communities challenging the status quo and living a stronger, better, and healthier life. So whether I'm speaking about, let's go back to commercial sex workers, like, you know, I'll go to like an international conference. What do you see? You see the sex workers take the stage, demand that they're heard, that their lives are valued. And it doesn't in like making sure that they are getting the kind of care they need from prevention to treatment. And you see it and you know that that would not have been possible if someone did not lay that groundwork five, 10, 20 years ago to make sure that not only were they in the room, that their voices were heard. That's only one. That's only the first two steps. The, that final step is how do you take their words and make those into actions? And once you start seeing that, you only need to see it once. You only need to see it one time. And then you're like, you know what? This work is actually going to go someplace. Like I can kick, yell and scream. But then I, if, if, I'm, if I know I'm screaming into the abyss, I'm going to eventually stop screaming. But if I get to hear one person who's going to be able to press the magic button to change things, oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Like you, you see people, like in specific to like, let's talk about uh, HIV land. You see people who in 1997 were, there's this thing called CD4 counts that really tell you how um, healthy someone is and how well they can fight off a, an infection. You see someone who had a CD4 count that was in single digits. Now, mind you, like uh, trying to explain this to the general community. The average person listening to this is somewhere between 800 and 1,200 T cells. And with those T cells, they can fight off random infections, things that you've never heard of or things that are normal, like the common cold. But if you're down to like single digits, that common cold that you had that gave you a runny nose and you ran into someone else who has single digits T cells, that might kill them. So that's just a general idea. But when you have someone who's in that single digit uh, T cell stable... Uh, status. And that was 1997. And then they got on treatment. And then they were, now we're 40, 30 years later, and they are doing well and thriving, not surviving, they're thriving. You see it and you're like, wow, this is what it's all about. When I see communities who are in the same situation, like, you know, not just individual people, because we we have to think larger than that. We have to think of like structural systems. Now that you're seeing communities are doing better. You're seeing like, okay, the money's going to the right places. It's getting to the right people. And they're being able to overcome, uh, overcome what the world has put upon them. Oh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's, uh, this is what keeps me from being jaded, that there, there are successes. It's not just abject failure. It's not just abject failure. I, I grant you that. 
But history repeats itself. And in Mm. 2019, a virus appeared on the world stage, which has changed all of our lives, probably forever, and brought into sharp relief all the things that you were describing happened in the 1990s in Africa and are now happening in this decade, not just in the US, but around the world. Those people who need healthcare the most, those people who will benefit the most from all that technology has to offer are being denied it or refusing it. Equally true, they are refusing it. Talk a little bit about that context and how you see this unfolding now. Let's talk about what happened two days ago. I took my nephews to a city called San Diego, whatever, and I ran into a guy. And like how it started, I, I was like dancing to the music. He's like, text me how you dance. And he like just this random guy was like, I want to know how you dance. Somehow, of course, the conversation turned to COVID-19. And this individual was more or less like just for lack of better term, was an anti-vaxxer. So barely believed that COVID-19 was dangerous and also wasn't sure these vaccines were efficacious. And, you know, the one thing that I think that is when it comes to history repeating itself and why you see like the HIV community leading the response to COVID-19 is that we've been here before. Like you've said, history has repeated itself. When there was treatment available, people were so used to failed treatments and like, oh, where did this come from? Or am am I a guinea pig? Or why is this only available in this community, but not in that community? All these different things. Like when we're, when we're saying like all those myths and misconceptions, they didn't come out of nowhere. They really come from people's wanting a desire to survive. They've heard in the past that this institution, whether it's a government, healthcare, a pharmaceutical company, is, does not have their best interests at heart. And so they're thinking, oh, this is that same situation, just in a different shade, right? And so have, taking the time and having that conversation with him it was like just random guy and listening to all of his concerns validate because like that's his lived experiences and then taking the time to say, okay, how are we going to break this down? So what did it take to break it down? So I think one of the things that was very important was to, to speak about like what, what is the process of, of creating a vaccine? Like when I talk about failure to have that conversation outside of those big fancy meetings I go to every so often, no one knew outside of those meetings that the SARS virus vaccine development and treatment was well underway. There was nothing new about the SARS virus. Uh, this, this is a COVID, a, a COVID vaccine that has probably been under uh, development for quite a while. This was, it was standard practice to like, oh, if I, if I got bored of going to this session, I can walk down the hall, listen to these people go into like minute detail about how they're going to develop this vaccine. And then taking all the, then all of a sudden, like you said, in 2019, something comes along and it was like, okay, we have like 10 to 15 years of research and we're going to start applying that to like creating prevention, treatment. How do we under, understand it? All those things. But that is not a conversation that like is general public information. If you do not go to those conferences, if you don't run in these public health circles, this is new to you. Very similar, like in the land of HIV, that was a virus that no one understood in 1981 when it was identified. So that was starting from scratch. And so we're, we're 40 years in and we're just getting to that point there. We're, we're still not at the same point that we were with, with SARS viruses because number one, it was more complicated. And we like had no knowledge of anything similar to it. 
But coronavirus is different. SARS viruses, da-da-da, we've heard about them for a long time. People have been working on this. And so there's that one side of like, how do we make sure that the public is fully aware of these things so that when something is developed, it's going to want it? Because have you ever drank Coca-Cola? Earlier, before we started talking, you started telling me where you were from. You said you uh, grew up in Nairobi. Nairobi, like, uh, let's just pretend you were born in 1980. Don't know what year you were born. So let's just pretend you were born in 1980. Nairobi was not uh, as much as a cosmopolitan global uh, city as it is today. But I bet you in 1980, you 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 knew about Coca-Cola probably well before you even had it, right? And so that is about like, that's about marketing a system. I'm convincing you that something, number one, number one, that it exists and that is that you're going to like it and it's going to benefit your life somehow. And we start having these conversations. And this is why, like what I always say, like Africa always leads these conversations. How are you going to have innovation about healthcare delivery that makes sense for the people that you're serving? So there's an, a country relatively nearby called Malawi. Malawi was the most innovative group on like trying to make sure that people who are nowhere near like uh, like Lusaka, uh, uh, yeah, no, nowhere near Lusaka or anywhere in Malawi, like where the big cities are, knew about like HIV treatment and prevention and they wanted it and desired it. And when they found a way to uh, drones, you know, flying things like have drones bring medication in because to getting to the most rural remote areas is impossible to send treatment. Is all like when it comes, people are going to be excited, want it, da da da. And then, like at that same time, you're like, you have to do a lot of work to make sure that not only do you want this treatment, but that if you are someone who's going to receive it, that you're not going to be stigmatized because stigma is huge. And we're not just seeing that in HIV land; we see that in COVID nineteen land due to a lot of politicization of this and making people think that it's us versus them. That I have to be on this side to do this. And now there's this other part that I think is very important. This is the most important part of this global conversation. When, remember when I said that politicians were making decisions as to whether or not people had access to care. So I'm living in a country where 60% of individuals have been vaccinated. Some people have chosen not to for those same reasons that we just spoke about. But I promise you right now, I can walk down the street if I was not vaccinated and boosted that third that third dose, everyone get their boost, that if I had not done that, I would have been able to go into a pharmacy. I could go into the pharmacy right now and get a vaccine boost at this very moment. Don't you have to think about it. And remember, I started off by saying 60% of people in the United States have already had received at least one dose. Across the continent of Africa, with the, it, like the percentage is so low that it's, it's horrible to say it's less than 5%. It's around 4.3% of people on the continent have had their first dose. And then we can talk about all the systems that make that happen. But do you know what the final thing that was so clear that's happening is like, it's about desire, whose who's, who's, uh, lives are valuable, and how is that placating on a global scale, right? And, you know, we are, when, at the time that we're uh, taping this, we are about one week past initially the United Kingdom, followed by Western Europe, followed by Canada, and followed by the United States of America, having a travel ban, which is, I could go into public health about why travel bans make no sense, but whatever. Uh, there's a travel ban on six countries in Southern Africa, four of which based on a variant that has been identified in Southern Africa. So scientists are very keyed in to COVID-19. They're making sure that they're looking at variants. Hey, we found one, da, da, da. 
What kind of information do we have about it? Nearly nothing. Is it does it does it kill people at a faster rate? We don't know. Like, is is it going to does it work? Uh, will the vaccines work against it? We don't know. We don't really know anything about this except that it exists. So the people who the the countries that were involved with identify and the countries that border them, there have been travel bans placed on those place on those countries. Do you, like and let's talk about a little bit of reality why I think this is so. Like, you know, I don't know uh, about the age of your listeners, why I find this is so asinine. We have individuals from New Zealand, different parts of Asia, Belgium. There's a lot of countries where people have had the same variant, but there are no travel bans on those places. None. Mm. Just those Southern African places. And and we're going to stop. Uh, we're going to stop a virus that doesn't care about uh, planes, trains and automobiles from coming a, ver- a version of it from coming to your country. But then it's still once again, this is not the first time we've had a variant. If I was a betting person and like going into Nerdland, there was something called the Mu variant. I thought the Mu variant was going to be the predominant variant in the world. And it turned out it petered out and died away and Delta stayed the strongest, right? But we have no idea what's going to happen with what the, this variant is called the Omicron. We have no idea what's going to happen with the Omicron variant, but we're creating like all these policies in place to deny people access and to demonize, not demonize, but like uh, shame people from a different part of the world. You know, like, okay, this is actually going to make it more difficult for these individuals to get the care they need. And do you know what could have stopped this variant? Like, you know, this is the part where I always tell people public health is not rocket science. It's one of my key terms or phrases. I haven't trademarked it yet, but that's one of my phrases. And do you know what rocket science of public health tells me? If those individuals had access to the vaccines in the same way that individuals in the northern half of this planet have access to vaccines, there would not have been an opportunity for a variant to even to develop. And if that variant had never developed, this would be a a non-starter conversation because it never would have happened. Like it's uh, prevention is so much easier, cheaper and ethical than, than treatment. Preventing something is always better than responding after it's there. Agreed. But here we have the crux of the matter. Social media, fake news, marketing, politics are active in public health policy and they're active in whether you and I have access to the vaccine or accept access to the vaccine. And that's the real problem, isn't it? That while science is progressing, What has come in the way of science making that impact are people with an agenda that is not clearly outlined. You can guess what that agenda is, but they put out these messages about the dangers of accepting what science has to offer. Now, you mentioned Coca-Cola. We welcomed Coca-Cola into our homes because we saw the guy in the red suit on the bottles, you remember? Because they, they invented Santa Claus, Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus. We brought Coca-Cola into our homes largely because it was marketed in a way that seemed really quite sexy. I don't know that that's the case for vaccines because people are saying, well, you know, this has been produced in a big heap hurry. It's produced by these guys somewhere in a foreign land. And they're out to get you. I mean, look at what they've done historically. You cite some examples of that in the US. These are stories that are being told to the population. So public health, whilst you're right, science is quite clear about what needs to happen. The thing that's getting in the way 
is how that is being relayed to the population. How do we fix that? So that is actually part of that conversation that I have with that exact same gentleman. He asked me what he's like. Uh, what's the what was the one thing that surprised you about the pandemic? And I said I had completely underestimated the role that misinformation and myths would play um, in the response. You just don't think that in 2020, in May of 2020, if you had told me that we were going to relatively quickly have a vaccine and then relatively quickly have a pushback from community members as to whether or not they wanted the vaccine, when everyone was locked up, you're in Australia, you were in proper lockdown, we were on pretend lockdown in the United States. If you were going to tell me that there was going to be a solution to accelerate the end of the pandemic, and that people would intentionally not take it, I would have told you, you have lost your mind. And when it happened, we were so woefully prepared for it, so woefully prepared for the misinformation. And this is something that we have learned from the land of HIV. And then like, when you think of like what some of the polio stuff that happened in India, when like some of the people who were providing the vaccinations were being murdered, like you remember hearing these backstories, but you always thought it was a one-off. That like people would uh, like, you know, somehow uh, say that these vaccines were harming people and da da da. It's like, it's just like these little small cases, like parents in Southern California and the US who, who believe that eating a leaf from this tree is better than taking them than, than having your, your chemotherapy. You know, these are such small things you never thought it would reach national and global proportions. I think the the big thing, this is the solution piece, because I like I, we can complain about stuff all day, but I'm all like, I'm very solution focused. And I'm like, okay, what do we need to do? The one thing that I've always said that public health has failed in is marketing and communications. That is the, the greatest failure of public health to not be able to market something as well as Coca-Cola or even somewhere close to it. Like with, if there's misinformation coming Do you know where the misinformation is coming? Those are individuals who are speaking the language of their audience. They are connecting with them at the time that they or in the routes that they want to be, whether it's time, whether like Facebook at 3 a.m. or or going on Instagram or wherever. They're connecting with people and doing the clickbait and da, da, da. If you spend you or us or me or whoever's working in public health spends as much energy flooding uh, appropriate information in a way that makes sense because we're worried so well about like oh if it doesn't say this and it doesn't say that it, you know it's gotta you know for us we have this thing called the centers of disease control and prevention the cdc if, the, if it doesn't use cdc language well maybe that's not right we have to put it through a focus group and da 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 well you know it's not going through a focus group that little message that showed up on someone's facebook at 3 a.m well, I need the I need the unfinished product of the appropriate messaging to show up at um, on someone's message at two fifty eight a.m. Follow me, like before they get to that misinformation, and you just keep flooding. You keep flooding. You get the people who are we use like in in public health lands. We say popular opinion leaders. What does that mean? We need the cool person everyone listens to, and. Let's just say I think I'm really cool. Not many other people besides my mom think that. So like, how am I going to get to the popular person who's going to say, oh, yeah, this is what we should do. I don't need them to be a public health expert. I need them to put it in their own language as to why they think a vaccine works or, or why they think it's important to care about your neighbor or the elders or your grandparents when you go over to their house. And this is how you're going to protect them. Those are those things that I can say all day in my language. But 
I go to conferences, like I said before, and I speak public healthy, and that was what my training is. I need to also speak the language of the person who works in the grocery store to the person who's living on the street to the person who's working in a standard uh, tie and suit office. If I can't speak all those different languages, I have to find that person who can, who that person's going to more or less listen to. Because this is the one piece that I said to this guy and and say say to everyone, you are more likely to listen to somebody who is trusted in your life, even in subject matter that they are not experts in. So I run around in, in public health land and I have a bunch of friends who are MDs. I bet you if one of my friends who works in neurology was to give me a little bit of information about something related to cardiology, they have been trained in cardiology probably as much as I have. But because I'm like, oh, you're actually smarter than me. Okay, great, 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 great. Like I trust you and I've trusted you on other matters. So I'm going to listen to you because I trusted you on other matters. Well, I like to extrapolate that out. Um, this one person who comes to my house and makes sure that I have food and has helped me clean up when I was really, really sick with something else, like how I had hernia surgery or something. That one person who I trust with my life, I trust with my children's life. And they say, oh, I saw this thing on the internet and then I don't know if these vaccines are safe and da, da, da. So you might want to pause on getting that vaccine till we have more information. And I'm not the type of person who's going to spend all day listening to this message that we're talking right now. I'm not going to spend all day trying to dive into NHS or the CDC websites or equivalents throughout. I'm just going to spend my time, like my busy, busy day going, this person I trust said this. I'm going to lean on what they said until I have time to get more information. But of course, alongside the virus, we had another virus that entered our communication system. They're called algorithms. Algorithms that use clickbait and such things in order to get you to hear a message repeatedly, whether you're online at 1 a.m. or 1 p.m., that misinformation is fed back to you. Is there some other way in which we can engage the people who really matter to us in order to make sure that they are not infected by those algorithms? There's two things. The upstream piece is to work with the folks at like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, da, 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 to make sure that they have a better screening process of misinformation uh, because they do have the tools to screen that out. We, we know that. On the other end is that piece that I was saying, like, okay, where the system is, like, I can either, I can, if I have a problem, I can either go over it, under it, around it, or through it. And I'm a big, I'm a big fan of making sure we're just going right through it. And like, uh, I think I mentioned before is like the, the, how are we going to flood information over misinformation and making sure that that information is getting to individuals in that appropriate manner. And like the terms that we use in my land is culturally responsive and timely manner, because that information that's coming in that algorithm, like how those algorithms work. Do you know what's not on my Facebook misinformation, right? It's not there. Like I have to like look at, I have to have someone else who sends me a screenshot because my algorithm like takes you to like a whole different set of nerdy statistic, da, 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 da. But it's always going to drive me to WHO, UNAIDS. I get driven to stuff like that. If the way that I got to healthcare was through name your favorite singers page, it's also going to go through name my other favorite singers page, Right. And so how am I going to combat that? It's like you have to flood information to get over that because if the algorithms are not going to be changed, then what I have to do is figure out how to what how I'm going to segment advertising to this individual. Let's say old school. 
I'm in my 40s. I spent a lot of time. I know exactly how to engage 40-year-olds. I'm an expert in engaging 40-year-olds. So 40-year-olds use this thing called Facebook. For the younger listeners, it's this old social media platform that no one uses anymore except the people who are older than you, the people with gray hair. Well, for if I wanted to engage the gray hair people, I know how to make a Facebook ad right now. And I promise you, I can probably get a Facebook ad. If you have Facebook right now, I can probably make a Facebook ad to get to you in Melbourne, Australia. And I could probably, it probably would take me 20 minutes to pull that together. I just have to know a little bit about your demographics and the things you might like. And I can pull that together. Same thing with Google ads, da, da, da. And taking that same information and applying it to appropriate public health messaging you know, it requires somewhat of a learning curve for people who haven't done that before. People who are sitting in our health departments who haven't done that before. Maybe they need to hire younger. You know, I always say that, like hire people who are experts in the work and, and stop trying to tell people what to do when you're not an expert. That was a PSA. If you're doing all of those things, then you're going to be able to get to the individuals. Someone else is getting to them through that same system. So study up, figure out how they're getting to them, and then overdo that. I, I find uh, there's certain messages in HIV land. We have this thing called U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. And to get to those individuals in particular parts of the world, especially parts of the world where you know Facebook is still king, and that's how people are getting a lot of their, their health information. How am I going to navigate all the noise? That's a nice way to say the misinformation. How am I going to navigate the noise where 85% of what you see is actual science-based um, best practices, clinical best practices, and 15% is the other stuff, as opposed to the other way around. So for those people who are not in the business that you and I are in, which is of actually figuring out what we need to do to get this out, what's the message to them? How do we make sure that the people who really need help get that help and that they listen to the messages that are being relayed by reputable sources? You've come from that community that tackled HIV those years ago. This is an analogous problem. How would you tackle them in the way that you would tackle the folks back in the 1990s who were at risk of HIV? The one thing that is so critical is that we listen to the people who have lived with COVID-19 and people who have lost their loved ones to COVID-19 and say, if we could go back in time and your mother, brother, sister, child, coworker, whoever, they were still alive and they were, and you knew, you knew that there was going to be a vaccine that could have saved their life. What could we have done differently to get to that person? Or you're the person who was intubated and one of the few people who came off the intubator and now you're, you're alive and relatively healthy. What could we have done with you to keep you on the prevention side? of COVID-19 as opposed to the treatment side of COVID-19. And whatever they say, do it. Don't come in with your own objectives of, okay, I think this is what's going to happen. Let's see if the community signs off on it. No, it's the other way around. Have the community tell you what your objectives are and you work around and you create that. You create that from the center. This is where I would say it's only in the last five to 10 years that HIV land has figured this out. And so that's the best, the, the public health best practice is to listen to the people who are the most impacted. If you have had, if you've ever gone to a, a memorial HIV service for someone who is close relative or friend, 
you probably have a general idea of like of how that person worked and how that person thinks. So what could you have done differently to change that? And if you start seeing, if I do a focus group of 20 people from Melbourne, Australia, who have lost a family member um, to this post vaccines, what could they have done differently to get that person vaccinated? And if you start seeing trends about what that looks like, you build a program based on that trend. Because I probably have an idea, but I can't speak to what happens in Melbourne. What I can speak to is how I would have gotten to my personal family members who I've lost. How, like, you know, I've lost three family members and six friends. So I can tell you what would have worked with the majority of them. You use the term SME, subject matter expert. I'm a SME for a particular segment of the population, lower income, black rural people in the South of the United States. I'm, I'm from the middle of the U.S. My family's from the, that, that part. I'm a subject matter expert for that particular population. And you should listen to me and other people like me who have had to go to those funerals. But I'm not a subject matter expert for someone who is a substance using individual on the streets of Sydney. It's not me. I, so you know who, who is? Other subject uh, using individuals on the streets of Sydney who have lost friends to COVID-19. Ace, that's gold. Because you're talking about patient advocates and you're talking about people who speak for groups of people who have a particular perspective, the perspective of those who succumb, the perspective of those who are calling to us to say, do it differently. Because if you do it differently, there'll be fewer of us here in the ground and fewer of you going to funerals. That's an extraordinarily powerful way to end our conversation. We've been talking for a while now. I'm really, really grateful for the time and the thought that you've put into this conversation. If there's anything that we or our listeners can do to help you with your objectives, please, please reach out. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your, your time today in helping really push. It's like a, I'm, I'm not pushing an agenda. I'm just really hoping that individuals who want life get to choose life. And it's that simple. Politicians have to get out of the way. Public health leaders have to get out of the way. I mean, just making sure that we, we have options out there where you're going to live a longer, healthier, and more involved life. And we want people to make those, make those decisions for themselves and for the ones they care about. And for the person standing next to you in the grocery store who doesn't know you at all, who might actually be impacted by a decision you made related to your COVID care and beyond. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.